right, all right. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. And on this, on this cold day, we're about to warm up this room, right? We're going to warm it up with the preaching of God's Word. And uh, if you want to throw in a, hey, I agree, or an amen every so often, that would be much appreciated. That will add to the warmth, I promise, okay? Well, I, uh, I grew up in church. I'm a pastor's kid. And so I had to, you know, we were in church every Sunday. I had to be like really, really sick to not go to church. And uh, so we were there, midweek service, the whole thing. And uh, I've probably heard more sermons than most of the people in this room simply because I grew up in it. And uh, honestly, I've, I've probably been to more women's conferences than most of the women in this room also. Because I was on the worship team and you had to serve wherever you were needed. Um, but he, here's the thing, that doesn't make me any better than you. Here's what I'm saying is I've, I've learned some things about hearing messages from God's word and that is that God many times would speak but I would leave uh, hearing the message and I'd be like, well, I, didn't, I, I heard it but I don't feel like I listened. Um, and those aren't the same thing and I wanted to come today and, and pray us into the place of listening to God. Because I believe in faith. As soon as we open this book and we look at what God wants to say, he's going to speak. The question is, are we going to listen? We're in the room. We're, I'm glad you're in the room. But being in the room is not enough. We have to lean in. We have to do our part. And so I'll do my part. You do your part. And I know God will do his as well. As we talk about this topic today, we're going to be talking about the dangers of anger. The dangers of anger straight out of Matthew chapter 5. But first, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that every time we look into the word and we see the things and examine our own hearts, we just, we always come back to the fact that we can rest in your love, that it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. You're just so kind to us in the way that you lead us. And so today we just start from a place of rest. We rest in knowing that we can't earn your love and we can't unearn it either. Um, we are loved by you because you have chosen to love us. And so out of that rest, we now say, God, would you speak? We're ready to listen. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. amen, amen. Well, we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. We're already cranking through. We've made it through the Beatitudes. And then last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the new reality that Jesus is defining for us as his followers and saying, here's the kinds of things that we're supposed to be to the world. And then here today, we're going to be studying the first of six moments where Jesus brings up a topic with the same kind of wording where he'll say something like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, and he's referring to Old Testament law. You've heard that it was said in the law, this, but I tell you this. So that just begs the question, what exactly is Jesus getting at? Is he saying, hey, in the Old Testament, I said some things, but now I've changed my mind, and now I want to tell you like some different things that, that you don't have to worry about the Old Testament anymore. Is he canceling the law? That's the question that that begs. Well, that's why Jesus sets up the passage we'll be in today with the verses we finished reading last week where he says, no, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He, he came to fulfill it. What does that mean? It means... Jesus is going to give us the deepest and truest understanding of the law. He's going to interpret it for us as our teacher. And he's going to say, hey, you've heard that it was said in the Old Testament, specifically here today. He's going to be re referring to Exodus chapter 20, where you hear in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder. And Jesus is going to reference that. And then he's going to give us the truest, deepest understanding of what God was getting at when he gave that command in the Old Testament. 
And so here is the word of the Lord for us today. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, when Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which we don't really have an English equivalent, but the closest thing would be an insult of calling someone like an, an, an idiot or calling them someone who's worthless. It's an insult. And anyone who says that is answerable to court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So you read those verses and you're like, whew, that's like really intense. Jesus jumps right into it here on the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's talk about that. Why does it feel so intense what Jesus just said? Well, because it kind of seems at first glance like he's saying, hey, if you're ever angry, you're in the danger of fire of hell. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. And, and in order for us to truly see what he's teaching, we have to zoom out a bit before we get to exactly what he's getting at. We have to zoom out and talk about the topic of anger in general in scripture so that once we see how God has revealed this topic of anger throughout the whole of scripture, then we're going to come back to Matthew 5 and then it's, you're going to see the amazing thing that Jesus is doing as our teacher. So let's just take a deep breath and say, okay, that sounds intense, but what, what can we learn from God's word about anger in general? Let's zoom out first. Well, when you talk about anger, it's similar to the topic of fear, because when the Bible says, do not fear, you know, don't be afraid, there's, there's parts of us that are like, wait, ever? Like, am I never allowed to be afraid? But what if, what if today during church, down the center aisle, the doors open and came, down came the aisle, uh, an eight foot tall grizzly bear, um, and he just starts strolling down the aisle, guess what's gonna happen is we're all gonna be afraid. And that's okay. That's God saying, he, when he tells us not to be afraid, he's not saying, hey, in that scenario, actually fear is my provision to you. It's a good thing. It's a gift from me to you. You're like, I don't want to get mauled by a bear. So therefore I'm going to jump up and I'm going to grab everyone I know and we're going to sprint out of here. That's all activated by the good fear that God gives us. And so in a similar way, when you look at anger, Jesus talks about the dangers of anger here in Matthew 5, but that doesn't mean he's saying, hey, every sort of anger is bad. There's no good that can come from it. Actually, it's something that God made. Uh, it's an emotion that he created. And it's something that we can experience. So let's just start by defining it. What exactly are we talking about? Well, here's a simple definition I put together. Anger is an emotion. So let's start by, it's something we feel. It's an emotion that evokes energy towards someone you feel did wrong or something that was wrong. It has to do with a person or a situation where you behold it, you look at it straight in the face and you're like, that's wrong. And because it's wrong, either I've been wronged or someone else was wrong, now I have energy. It evokes an energy of like, I'm going to do something about that. And that emotion, that experience is called anger. And the question is, can I experience that emotion or is that a wrong thing to experience as a Christian? Is anger always a sin? Well, I think the answer to that is no. It's not a sin. And, and my reason for that is because God gets angry. I could take you to so many different passages in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, where God gets angry about certain things. That's his response. And we know that God does not sin. And Jesus being the son of God, being God himself, he also didn't sin. And he got angry in the New Testament. So because God gets angry, that tells us anger doesn't mean you're sinning. 
Um, but we have to look at how God is angry and say, what can we learn from that? Because as you see the times where God is angry, you will notice that he's always angry for right reasons. God is always angry for right reasons. If we were to summarize the things that make God angry, they tend to fall in these three categories. Um, one is he, he gets angry when we exchange God for an idol. When we don't acknowledge God as God, that, it, that makes him angry. He also gets angry when he gives his word, his commandment, and then his people just say, uh, we'd rather not, God. We know that this is what you want us to do, but we're, we're just going to go a different way. And then the third category is God gets angry when, when injustice occurs and people are mistreated. That, that, to God's heart, that makes him angry that that happens. And as we look at how God is angry and he doesn't sin, so we know anger is not a sin. But here's the thing. For us as, as humans, anger isn't a sin, but it often leads to sin. You can, you can take anger and then you can go a few steps further into a place where you actually are doing sinful things, where you're slandering, you're calling people by name, like th- that, ha- that happens here inside this passage. You know, calling people names and, and hating people, and it can so easily lead to that, and that's why it's a dangerous emotion in that sense. It's not that it's evil on its own. We just have to be really cautious with it and where it leads. You know, one of the things I love is when um, even secular psychology can identify things that are true from the scriptures. I love that they put language to it in the same way that the scriptures would put language to it. Because these are people who, they give their lives to studying human behavior. And here is uh, what the American Psychology Association says about anger. They say, anger can be a good thing. It can give you a way to express negative feelings, for example or motivate you to find solutions to problems, but excessive anger can cause problems. You say the same thing painted in scripture when he says it's not not that it's a sin, but it's dangerous. You have to be cautious with it. So it can lead to problems. It can lead to things that aren't for your good. So as we look at God in the scripture, we say, man, he's angry sometimes. What do we learn? What we learn is this. God is always right to be angry because he's always wise. That's inside of God's character. He doesn't stop being wise when he's angry. Those things go together for him. It's inside of who he is. It's like the apostle Paul says that God is the only wise God. That's something that stands out to him because he's saying he's always present with his wisdom in all the things that he does. And that's why it's so important that those two things go together, anger with wisdom. Everything goes wrong with anger when you detach it from wisdom. This is where things start to go awry. When we detach wisdom fully from anger, just things go haywire. And so what we have to do is we have to say, okay, there are times where I will need to pick up anger because picking up anger is me looking at something that's wrong. And yes, it's wrong. This grieves God's heart, and we can agree on that. It's wrong, and so I'm going to pick up this anger, and that's going to give me the energy to respond. But if that's all you do, you're going to be walking out of balance, okay? You have to have something in your other hand in order to balance it out, and the other thing is wisdom. Every time we pick up something, we say, oh, that's just, that makes me angry because something wrong happened. In the other hand, you have wisdom. And what will happen is anger will give you the energy to act, but wisdom is the part that says this action would be the right action. Okay? It's not just, oh, I feel the energy, so therefore I'm just going to act. No, it's I feel the energy, I'm going to act, 
but wisdom is gonna guide the process of deciding, what exactly should I do here with this emotion? So that's why we have to come back to the scriptures and say, how can we be wise with our anger? What's the wisdom scripture gives to us? So here are just three, three things straight out of the scriptures I wanna share with you on how to be wise with anger. First principle, we need to be reluctant to become angry. Be reluctant to be, even become angry. That's why Proverbs 14 verse 29 says this, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The, the point being, as Christians, there are many times we could become angry, and there are many times we should become angry because something wrong has happened. But the thing about us is that we're not the people who are just super excited to go in that direction. We're reluctant. It's like, maybe, maybe do, I, do I need to be angry about this? And simply just slowing down enough that you can ask the question to yourself and say, okay, this happened. Should I be angry about that? And if you would just slow down to ask yourself that question, that would bring you into the space of wisdom because that now takes you away from just reacting to now responding. And we don't wanna be reactionary, we wanna respond in the ways that wisdom would say to respond. And so the first thing is we're reluctant. We don't always wanna jump on the anger train. We're not like, hey, anger train showed up, here we go, I love this train, like that's, that's not us. We're the people who say, I don't know, should I? Should I, I wanna be slow to anger. Second principle about how to be wise in anger is don't let anger fester. Don't let it fester. This is what the Apostle Paul is addressing um, pastorally with all the, the people who are living in Ephesus, all the churches in Ephesus, when he says in Ephesians chapter four, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And this is pastoral advice, it's not some sort of like scientific method he's giving you. What he's getting at is when you have anger, you don't just become inactive and just let it sit there for as long as it would like to be there. That's not what we do. As the followers of Christ, what we do is we have a, a sun that comes up in the morning with new mercies from God and when it goes down, we wanna make sure that we've done something with the thing that has caused anger in our lives. And even when wisdom says, hey, you actually can't take action on this topic. And so we feel the anger, but we, we realize wisdom would say, there's nothing I'm going to do today about it. Then we take our energy and now we bring it into prayer. So there's always something for us to do with our anger every single day. You can feel that energy and then you can take that to God in prayer, even if wisdom says, we're not gonna do anything about that specifically. And that's when we pray and we say, God, would you step in? God, I don't think I'm supposed to do anything. I don't sense any calling to take an action myself, but here's the things I'm experiencing, and would you move? Would you make what's wrong, what, what's wrong right? And that's where we direct our energy. We direct it straight into prayer. So we're reluctant to become angry. We don't let it fester. And then finally this, let grief join your anger. Let grief join your anger. This is what we learned straight from Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 3, um, talking about how Jesus looked out at, at different people and, and he looking out in Mark chapter three said this, and he looked around the, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Anger and grief were held simultaneously by Jesus because both those emotions are gonna bring up different topics to you. 
and, and they don't have to be in conflict. We can feel the energy about like, man, that's wrong and that makes me angry. You can feel that and also feel, but isn't it sad that that happened? Isn't it sad that that person made that choice? And so I can experience that energy and that sadness together because anger might say, okay, was that right? No, it was wrong. Grief's going to walk in and say, but do you feel the pain of what's in front of you? And if you can invite grief to join your anger, again, what's happening is you are actually connecting it to wisdom. And you're able to slow down. You're able to make better choices when you take this word from God's word, saying, I, I'm, I'm going to let grief join it. That's what I want to do. So here in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling the law. He's, he's giving us the best understanding of that commandment out of the Ten Commandments because he's showing us what? He's showing us that we thought that that commandment only meant that murder exists in our hands. And what Jesus is now showing us in the New Testament is that murder can exist in your heart. It's not something that only exists if you literally, with your hands, take someone's life. It's something that exists in your heart. You can have murder in your heart, and murder in your heart is unrestrained, reactive, long-standing, detached from wisdom kind of anger, which I think the best English word for that kind of anger would be hatred. You know, in English, when you say, I'm angry, that's one thing. When you say, I hate that person, that's the next level. It, it escalates it. And, and that's maybe a better word to use here in this passage saying, if anyone hates their brother or sister, that's murder in the heart. And, and that's the point Jesus is bringing in that this is not for anyone's good. And so he warns us against it and then he sets a standard. But listen, every time God sets a standard, it's because he loves us. God's not setting a standard saying, oh man, I, I don't want those people to have a good time on earth. No, he's saying, I want their greatest joy to exist. And in order for that joy to exist, this standard has to be in place. He, he's, he's just like any good parent would put rules and standards around their children, right? Like that's what good parents would do. Um, I, I have my own set of rules with my kids and I, I often will take them out to dinner. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do is just to get to take them to a restaurant and many times I'll, I'll let mom have a little break and I'll pick up the kids uh, after work and then um, they know that my rule, one of my standards is when we get to the restaurant, we pull in to the parking spot and then I'll hop out and then I'll always get our three-year-old who sits behind me but my two older kids know that when they exit the, the car on the right side, they're not just allowed to just go running around the parking lot. They know. The rule is stay right next to the van, come around the corner, and then meet dad at the corner of the van. And then what they're supposed to do is, is um, it's, it's kind of like, have you ever seen a, a kid's soccer game where like wherever the ball goes, there's just like a swarm of children that follow the ball, right? There's no offense, defense, there's just players. Like <laughs> that's what's happening. And, and my kids know, like that's what I want you to do with me. It's, it's I want you right next to me. I'm the ball, you're the soccer team. I want you right next to me, why? It's because I love them. It's because I want good things for them. I want them to be safe. And if they're just running around in that parking lot, I can't help them with that. And so I set a standard because I love them. And that's what God's doing here. He's not trying to withhold something good from you. He's actually trying to hand you the good thing. And the way he's doing that is he's setting a standard because he knows, he knows the destruction that comes when hatred lives in our hearts. And that destruction is not just in us, it affects all the people around us. 
When hate lives in our hearts, everyone around us suffers the consequences. We can't keep it inside. And God is saying, I'm setting the standard because I don't want you to hurt yourself. This isn't for your good. You're going to deteriorate on the inside if you let this get to this point where hate is living in your heart. So he doesn't want that, but he also is thinking about the people around you because as much as you would like to keep that all inside, it's going to come out in some way. And maybe it's not going to be that you will, with your hands, murder someone. But what he's saying is there's so much more destruction that still comes if hate lives in your heart. There's murder in your heart. And God's stepping in and he's saying, I'm going to set the standard. And so that you hear his warning. There's danger here. I don't want this for you. It's not for your good. That's the point he's bringing in Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus doesn't just bring a heavy warning. And this is what I love about how he teaches. He doesn't just set a high standard. He also, as a good shepherd that he is, he says, and I want to help you with that. Okay, I'm not just going to say, hey, do this and good luck. That's not Jesus. He's saying, hey, here's the standard. And then how he's going to finish this passage, this section right here, he's going to give us two ways on how we can keep our anger under control so that we don't end up in bad places. So the first thing he's going to teach us is that we're supposed to keep short accounts with our brothers and sisters. It's one of the ways that we're going to keep our anger under control is we're going to keep short accounts with each other. That's what he says in verse 23 when he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. That is, uh, that's quite an extreme example that Jesus brings in on what it, how important it is for us to, to not have anything between us as brothers and sisters. And to the, to the people that he's talking to at this time, to most of them that are listening to him when he preaches this sermon, uh, going home to go be reconciled with your brother and sister meant like something like an 80 mile walk. So not, not a small trip, right? We don't really think in walking, like how far would 80 miles be? Let me just give you kind of a little bit of an approximation. Well, if, if we were to walk 80 miles, it's from the, from the stage I'm standing on, 80 miles further would be where, um, where I drop off my kids at kids ministry, right? Somewhere around there. That's a joke. You guys are so, so serious today. Everyone's like, what's going on? No, it's not 80 miles. That's okay that it's not 80 miles. I love our kids ministry, but all the parents in the room, you know, when you drop off your kids, sometimes you get a little workout sweat at church and you walk into the room, you're like, okay, well, I got my workout in for the day. Um, but it's, it's a far distance is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, that's how much it matters to me that you take this seriously. That you keep short accounts with each other. If you know that there's something between you and someone else, that you're going to do something about it. You're going to do everything you can to reconcile to them. He's giving us an extreme example to make an extremely clear point, which is that anger between us, it affects our worship. That's why he says when you bring your offering of worship to God, your tithes offerings or the songs that we sing, anything we're bringing is an offering of worship to God. That's affected if if we're not uh, treating each other well and keeping short accounts. And so that's why we should be jealous for what just happened here today on Sunday. This time that we spend together on Sunday, we should be jealous for it. And that's what should drive us to say, I'm going to keep a short account. Because I don't want it to affect my worship in any way. So if that's the call that we're supposed to reconcile with our brother or sister, let me just share a few thoughts about reconciliation. Um, First, uh, it has to start here. Before you do anything on this topic, you pray. 
If you're one of those people who just is like action-oriented and you see that there's something between you and someone else and you're like ready to go, then this word is for you. Don't do anything until you pray. I mean, look at who's giving us this command. Look at who's giving us this instruction. Jesus. Every time Jesus did something, there was a time where he would pray before doing it. He was a guy who would, he'd go outside the city and he'd be like, I got to get away from the people. Like, I can't be around the people. I need to get alone with my father because I'm going to pray. And even knowing exactly why he came from heaven to earth to save us, and he knows the mission he's on the whole time, then he's about to go die on the cross. And what you find before he does that is you'll find him in a garden praying. Before you do anything, pray. Because that's one of the ways that you invite the wisdom of God to now be guiding your steps. But then once you pray, the next step is for you to take the first step initiating reconciliation. You have to take action. You have to say, I'm going to reach out to the person. I'm going to say, hey, could we have a conversation? And, and I'm going to bring it up. Because as much as... Uh, We'd like to just pass that on to someone else. What this passage is teaching us is it's, it's on us. If you know it exists, it's on you to take the first step. Notice in the passage he says that if we remember that a brother or sister has something against us. So that phrase, it's like, well, who, who messed up here? Who, who, who is in the wrong? Who's the guilty party? Well, we don't know is the answer. He doesn't tell us, right? It could be someone has something against me for good reason because I had messed something up or for a misunderstanding or because they made something up in their minds. We, we're not told the details of the example and that's on purpose. What Jesus is getting at is it doesn't matter who's guilty and who's innocent. When there's something between you and a brother or sister, you take initiative. So, much, so many of us, we would just rather wait until someone else did something about it. And the way we'll rationalize that is we'll say, well, I'm not the guilty one here. I'm, I didn't do anything wrong. And so therefore, we'll leave it to the other person to then come to us. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not a good way to keep your anger in check. That leads to many bad things for you. And so my guidance for you is if you know it exists, if there's something between us, take the first step and ask for the conversation, and then just simply meet with a person and say, here's what I'm sensing, here's what I'm seeing, are you seeing the same thing? And you humbly come to them with questions. We're not, we're not you know, c calling for a fight, we're just kind of humbly come with some questions. Can I just tell you from experience, it's amazing the amount of times that first conversation is all it, that was needed in order to resolve it. It's amazing how many times you, you open up the conversation, you're like, oh, I don't really want to do this. It's like, I'm conflict averse. I don't want to do this, but then I'll take the first step to make the conversation happen. And it's amazing how many times just the grace that runs into that conversation where it's just like, actually, this is just a misunderstanding. I did not mean that at all when I said that, or I didn't mean that at all when I did that. And you can maybe find resolution if you'll simply just take that first step and initiate reconciliation. Now, one last thought on reconciliation, because... I can tell you that's not going to work every single time. That one conversation is all that it takes. There are times where there needs to be further work in order to be able to be reconciled. And in those moments when we have a conversation and it kind of goes worse than it was, and we're like, oh, this did not take a step in the right direction. In those moments, we don't go to, you know, 10 other people and tell them what we're upset about and how bad the conversation went. We don't do that. We don't share our anger widely and expect some of those people to maybe talk to the person so that they can know that they're wrong. That's not what we do. What we do is when we can't resolve it one-on-one, -on -one, we're gonna bring in one other person who we would consider to be wise. 
Anyone, someone in our church. There's so many wise people in our church. If you just get to know some people, you're like, wow, they have a lot of wisdom. That's the person you ask and you say, hey, can I bring you into this situation and can you help me with it? Is there anything else I can own? Is there anything else I can do to be reconciled to my brother or sister? And the reason that matters is because we don't want it to affect our worship. We, we care so much about this. And when, when we do that, our Sunday services become what they were meant to be. And this is, this is the place where unity is felt. I want it to be that we keep such short accounts with each other that even as you walk through the sliding doors and you come into the building that you just sense like, man, there's something different happening here. And may that different thing be that we're walking in unity with each other. And, and when you have the unity of the spirit, then you have the power of the spirit. And we don't even know what's gonna start happening. If we still truly start walking in that unity, you'll just see God do so many things because we're creating the space where God says, that's where I work. I work when my people are keeping short accounts. So that's the first way that Jesus teaches us that we can keep our anger under control. Second way um, is in verse 25 and 26, he's gonna teach us that we should not be making enemies of the world. Verse 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. Whoever is taking you to court, do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Uh, a couple differences I want to point out between our first example and then this one. One is, in the first example, he says brother or sister, right? So he's referring to people inside the family of God. Here now we have the term adversary kind of pointing out, it's like, it's just anyone <laughs> inside the church or outside the church. And, and we are the ones who are guilty in this example, because he's saying, you're going to, if he takes you to court, the judge is going to send you over to the officer. You're going to end up in prison and you're not going to get out until you pay it. Why? Because we're the ones who had done something wrong in this example, clearly something financial, because we're going to have to pay back every penny back to this person. And even though we're the guilty party in this example, somehow we're the ones calling that person that we wronged the adversary. They're my enemy, even though we're the ones who did something wrong in this example. And we should not be known as the people who just walk around everywhere looking to make enemies of the world. That's not the way of Jesus. He's saying, no, you don't walk into those spaces, especially when you're guilty and then make them the enemy. That's not what we do. And yet what's so sad about Christianity is if we were to take a poll about what people think about Christians, somewhere in there would pop up this idea of Christians are those people who have God, but they're mad at everyone else who doesn't have God. That they're mad that they're living like they don't have God. And that's kind of what, what they're like. And, and as, as soon as you push a button on them, it's like, watch out. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We shouldn't be the people who walk into spaces just ready to make enemies. That's the point he's getting at here. We should be people who are bringing in and coming into spaces and we're, we're ready to make friends, not enemies. So we're the people when we go to our, I don't know, your, your HOA board meeting, if you've ever been to one of those, I've never been to one, but if you go to those, um, you know, you could maybe have something you want to bring up, but you don't walk in there ready to just pound your fist and point a finger and yell like we don't do that because we don't walk into places trying to make enemies of the world. We're trying to make friends. And we can address the things we need to address, but it's the way that we do it matters so much. You know, back in Chicago, I, uh, where we used to live, I remember Christina took a job at Starbucks and 
she was amazing at that role, and she would like memorize everyone's names and their drinks, and every time I would go in and visit, it'd be like, hey, it's Christina, and like, she was just one of the most beloved employees at Starbucks. And, uh, and in addition to that, she would start telling me about this guy named Rick who would come in, and he would always come in super early in the morning, and he was the kindest person that would always walk in and, and he would bring donuts to the staff on just random days and just be like, hey, here's a gift. And his goodness and generosity gave him a reputation that all the employees talked about. Oh, it's Rick, we love Rick. Rick is such a great guy. And it was a few months after that, that Christina had already experienced the goodness of Rick's presence that then she found out actually Rick's, Rick goes to our church. We just didn't know him, we hadn't met him yet. And it was such an encouraging thing to say, that's awesome that someone with that reputation goes to our church, that's sharing the good of Jesus right there. Where people don't think in spite of who that person is, maybe I'll try out church, but rather they, they feel this draw, why? What did Rick have? He had the understanding that he was walking into every space he could walk into, bringing the good of Jesus and saying, I'm not here to make enemies, I'm here to make friends. I'm not gonna make an enemy of the world. We can't do that, we can't afford it. We can't say, hey, all those people out there, they're all our enemies when God is saying, I wanna reach out to save those people. You can't take the mission field God gives us and then say, oh, and then they're all our enemies. God's saying, no, go out there and make friends with them because I've given all this grace to you, I've forgiven you, and why can't we go now and reach out with the same grace and love that we've always received? That's how God is. And we just can't afford it. We can't be making enemies of those people that God is reaching out to save. So this is what God gives us. He gives us a warning and then some instruction on how to live that out and how to keep it under control. So as we close, would we just, let's all stand together. I want to pray for you. <clears throat> and this is when I... I want the message that was spoken to many people to now come to you. And we need to ask ourselves, what is God trying to speak to me right now? So maybe let's just enter into this posture of prayer. Go ahead and close your eyes. And just focus your attention on the Lord. And we're asking God, what is it? What is it that you're saying? So here in a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to receive communion, so I'm going to invite the ushers to go ahead and come forward. But uh, before we even receive the elements, let's ask God, what is it that you want to say today? Father, we are your people, and we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you've said. And now we ask God, is there anything you want to speak to us individually? Is there somewhere in our lives that Anger has led to sin. We didn't appropriately handle this emotion and it led us to do something we shouldn't have done, God. Or is there any reconciliation that needs to happen before the next time we gather? God, would you bring a name to mind right now if that's what you are asking of us? Or is there something we need to make right with someone because we've made an enemy when we didn't need to make an enemy? God, is there anything we need to own and make right and make a friend? And just as we are in this space, I just want to give a few seconds so that you can talk with God. You can agree with him. Anything that he's bringing up right now, what is it that God is asking of you?
This is the work we do as followers of Jesus. God, here's my heart. Would you change it? Would you mold it like only you can? And we'll give you praise for it. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. The ushers are now going to lead you. They'll lead you row by row. You're going to come forward, receive the elements, keep those in your hand. And then after we sing this song, Pastor Brady is going to lead us in a time of communion. This is my